0: Well, good morning, Lamb's Chapel. It's great to be with you all. Would you take your Bibles and join me once again in the book of Genesis, first book in your Bible, this foundation upon which the rest of God's word uh, stands. And we're going to pick it up where we left off. I've been excited to get back here since last week. And so we're going to find ourselves in chapter 2 today, starting in about verse 4. And we're going to read through the majority of our text today at the very top, I'm going to take you through not every word, but we're going to hit the highlights, and then we're going to go back to the top, and we're just going to go through it bit by bit. But you'll recall that so far we have studied the first six days of creation, or the only the six days of creation during which God, uh, he... Assembled the universe He created space, time, matter And then he built on that like a pyramid And he came to a pinnacle Which is his greatest creation Which is man himself And we looked at that last week And now what's interesting is As we come into the second chapter of this book We're going to see another account Of the creation of man Two accounts of the same creation Mankind, why are there two? Very interesting question, but that's not the only question that's going to pop up, because as you read this, you may have a couple of other questions. So let's take a look at this together. I want you to start in verse 4 with me. And it says, This is the history of the heavens and the earth. When they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now watch this. Out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow, which is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right, stop right there. Now you may have a question right there. If you, if you remember, if you're paying attention, in chapter 1 we saw that creation, and we saw in that account that all the trees, the, the, the realm of the flora, which would be your trees, your plant life, all the vegetation. When does that come? It comes on day three. And so here it appears to follow the creation of man. It comes after man. What is that about? Do we have an inconsistency here? Let's read on in verse uh let's see what verse nine says, or rather uh, fifteen. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Now, even though this isn't part of our text, I want you to drop down to verse eighteen. And see what that says, it says, And the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I shall make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And so we've got another interesting little tidbit here. We saw the realm of flora Uh, seemingly coming after the creation of man, now, as opposed to chapter 1, when all the animal life, the fauna, come right before the creation of man, who comes last, here, animals seem to be created after man is created. What are we dealing with here? Do we have some inconsistencies? Are there already some contradictions in the Bible? Has it only taken the space of one chapter to see some, some things that don't, Match up? Are the atheists right about this book that it's just full of inconsistencies and, and contradictions? Should we just chuck this thing right now, save ourselves the trouble, and you go home and, and pretty soon you just spend your Sundays watching football? Is that what we ought to do? Well, no. Let's take a look at this. There's, there's an explanation here, and I, I believe what we're looking at in chapter two is a summary account. All right? How do you explain the differences between chapter two and chapter one? I would try it this way let's suppose that you're new parents. You got a baby. Now in preparation for that baby, you have decided to put an addition on your house. You built a baby room. And so I come to you and I say, hey, tell me about this room. And you say, oh, well, you know, yeah, we you know, we laid the foundation and uh, we, we put the frame up and we put uh, sheetrock on the walls and some drywall and we painted it, painted it blue. And then we went in there, we put things on the walls and Uh, I put a crib, put a crib in there, and then I put a mobile, hung that right over the crib, and then we brought our baby in that room and we put the baby in the crib. Now, is that an accurate account? Uh, Does that tell me about the room? Indeed, it does. Is it an exhaustive account? Well, no, there's obviously some nuances in there that didn't get mentioned, but it's a very linear, sequential account of the room. But what is it leading up to? The whole story leads to a point. What's the point? We brought the baby in, and we put the baby in the crib. The baby was the point that we were heading toward, okay? It was all for the baby. So what if I said, tell me about your baby? Not tell me about your room, but tell me about your baby. Oh, well, where do I begin? Well, he, you know, he was conceived by his mother and I, last year of the pandemic, in fact, and uh, there was a nine-month gestation period, and, and during that time, my, my wife had some cravings. Man, there were some weird cravings for pork ribs and, and watermelon, and, and uh, you know, lime sherbet and gummy worms and stuff like that. And then the baby was born, and oh, it was a C-section, and uh, no, no, no problems. He came out, looked like a lizard. We had to wipe him off, and so then we brought him home. And oh, oh my gosh, yeah. We, we, we built a room for them. And so when we built that room, we laid the foundation. We put this, the framework up. We put the sheetrock on the wall, drywall, painted it baby blue. Got that from Sherwin-Williams. And then I put a crib in there that I found at Pottery Barn Kids. Had to put it together myself. But then I, I brought in this shelf for the baby's toys, and then we put things on the wall, pictures of different things, Winnie the Pooh and Captain America and uh, Billy Joel. And... Uh, found me a mobile, and I put that mobile over the crib, and you crank it up, and it plays Uptown Girl. How about that? And then we brought in the baby, and we put the baby in the crib. Now, are those two very different accounts? They're different, right? Do they contradict each other? No, they're not in conflict with each other, but they are very different. Well, that's how I want you to see the difference between chapter one and chapter two. You see, uh, chapter one is a chronological account. It's a sequential account. It's very, very linear. Leads to a point. Chapter two is a thematic account. What is the theme of the whole story? It's the baby. In the first account, I'm telling you about the room, right? You want to know about the room. In the second account, you want to know about the baby. And so the baby's going to figure out. Dramatically into that story. Everything is in relation to the baby. Well, that's how chapter two is. Chapter one is creation in relation to God and his glory. Chapter two is creation in relation to man and his dignity. Here are a couple of images I want to show you. I've referred to creation as as being like a pyramid, it's building upon itself, right? So look at this image here it's a view of a pyramid from the side. And you can see the days of creation keeps building. He starts out on the bottom there with time, space, matter, etc. He separates light from dark. That's day one. Day two, he creates the atmospheric heavens. He separates the waters above from the waters below. Day three, he creates the seas. He creates vegetation. Day four, sun, moon, stars. Uh, Day five, he creates the aquatic life, the birds of the air. Day six, uh, land creatures, both domestic and wild, and to cap it all off at the pinnacle there, is man very linear takes you from the bottom all the way to the peak right there chapter 2 gives you the same pyramid but from a different view you're not looking at it from the side you're looking at it from above you're looking down on this pyramid as you are right here now when you look at that image where's man is man on top no he's smack dab in the middle That's your viewpoint right there. He doesn't appear to come last. He appears to be central and everything is in relation to him. That is your view. And that is the difference between chapter 1's account and chapter two's account. Because in chapter 2, creation is personalized to Adam. To Adam. Now here's what I want to do with our text today. In your notes, let's personalize this account for you. Because what's true of Adam is true of you. And so we're going to see the difference between you and Adam is merely the agency of a mother and father. He came perfect from the hand of God, but you are just as precious in the sight of God as Adam was. And we're going to look at this together. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would guide us as we study your word. What an amazing Uh, account you have set before us today, I pray that we would be able to unpack this and extract from it truth that is beneficial, that gives us an awareness of how you've created us and what it means to live in your world, which you have made. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so in Genesis chapter 2, you're going to see, first of all, in your notes, your position, your position. Uh, Adam's position is prominent in Genesis 2. It says first that God made the earth and the heavens, and in verse 5 we saw that before any plant, this happened before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. These plants are plants that have not come up yet. Why haven't they emerged? What are they waiting on? These are plants that are intended by God to be cultivated and tended to by man. They are tarrying. How many of you know that there are some plants that don't come up as often as others? We moved into a house in Elon. Uh, there was a dear lady that, that owned that home, lived in that home before us, and she was a wonderful gardener. She would planted all kinds of beautiful things on that property, and just in the months that we've lived there, we've seen things come up that we had no idea were even there. And so not all plants come up at the same time. They wait. They're waiting for a certain time. What are these plants waiting on? There's a couple of reasons they're waiting. If you continue in verse 5, it says, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. They're waiting because the hydrologic cycle, the continuous uh, circulation of water, in the earth atmosphere system. That had not been started yet. And this this text is careful to show us, it says that God had not sent rain upon the earth, but it's careful to show us in verse six where the water is gonna come from. He has provided a mist to condense And we talked about in week one, there was a vapor canopy over creation that watered the earth. There would be a a constant state of moisture. There'd be a heavy condensation in the morning. And so these plants are waiting to come up because that hydrologic system had not been put into place yet. So what is it that that initiates that? It's going to be God. Notice it says God. Had not sent the rain. It is God who sends the rain. Psalm 135 7 says, He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Isn't that lovely language to think of God as the one who orchestrates the rains and the lightning and all of that? And so we see the first thing in this hydrologic cycle when we think of rain and photosynthesis and growth all of that must be predicated by god saying it's time he's the one that initiates it and so it's waiting on god but it's not just waiting on god it says in our text that there was no man to till the ground there was no man to till the ground it's waiting not only on the father it's waiting on the baby right how come you you wait to crank up that mobile with billy joel you're waiting on the bait. You're like, Pastor Scott, what is it with you and Billy Joel? It's a long story. Uh, I love the piano man. Anyway, the baby's got to be l- set in that crib. That is what creation is waiting for. And he has not been created yet, but in verse 7, he is created. Here's the Lord placing his image bearer into the world. Look at verse 7. It says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. And we're going to see two main components in God's shaping of man. First of all, what's true of Adam is true of you. In your notes, God made your body. God made your body. Your body has shape and form and visage because God created it. Your substance, your metaphysical properties, everything is because of the hand of God. You don't like how you look? You take it up with God. All right? There are people that want to change their anatomy and do all of these things. Listen, that is a rebellion against your maker. Your God made you the way you are. And so you are comprised of the same stuff Adam was. What was Adam made of? It says that he made him of the dust of the earth. Dust of the ground. You are dust. You are earth. We are earthy people. Earthy people. Did you know that? I mean, Adam was created literally, directly from the earth. You come from the same exact elements, even though you were born. All right? You have, I think, there's like six elements in the human body. And that basically is the same components of a rock in its most basic elements, if you took all of the substance, all of the elements of your body, you, you compressed them to one substance, your body would be worth about a buck fifty. All right? I mean, inflation, you might be up to seven bucks, eight bucks, something like that. But you know, if you, if you go into the ground, that's what you're going to condense to. If there's no preservatives in you, and nobody's trying to keep you, uh, you know, embalmed and whatnot, you will decay back to your basic elemental form, and you will be earth. To dust you will return. And that's what Adam is. And if you could just imagine what that looked like for God to form Adam, that he would pull elements from the existing matter... He'd say, let's take some phosphorus from over here. Let's take some hydrogen from over here and put it all together. And just, you see this statue, this image bearer, fashioned at the hand of God. It, it's almost difficult to imagine. I have a pretty good imagination, and I, I can picture something like that. It's, it's pretty fantastic, but I can believe it. I can accept it. You know what's really amazing? When I think about that, you could take a cell from a man and a cell from a woman, and that they could unite, and they could form human life." And that over nine months, that, that new life would draw off those elements from the body of the mother and that a, another human body would be produced. See, Adam came from the earth at the hand of God. You come from the same elements, but it's from the body of your mother. And it's just an amazing thing. And people think about how the external is described as being created here. You know, God made him from the dust of the earth. And they look at that and they go, ah, it's too supernatural for me. I don't buy that. No, I'm, I'm more into the evolutionary explanation of all this. I, don't, I just don't believe in all the supernatural stuff. And I hear even people in Christian circles say that, and I just want to say, tell me why you're a Christian again. Like, I mean, you, you, you believe in God, apparently, right? A supreme being, right? You believe in Jesus. You believe Jesus is God in the flesh? I hope you do. If you, if you don't, we got a much bigger problem. You believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? Do you believe that he lived a perfect life, that he performed miracles, that he walked on water, that he multiplied the loaves and the fishes, that he raised the dead, that he himself was raised from the dead? You believe all that? If you don't, you're not a Christian, that's for sure. But if you believe all that, you could believe this. This is no problem for God to do this. And so we see this wonderful creation. He continues in verse 7, he says that he breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Some of your versions say man became a living soul. And that's the next point in your notes. Not only did God make your body, God made your soul. He made your soul. In fact, you don't merely have a soul, you are a soul. That's what C.S. Lewis said. He said, I don't have a soul, I am a soul. I have a body. Your soul is the part of what God made that will last into eternity. Your body will pass away, and you'll get a new glorious body later on. But when God created you, He created a soul housed in a fleshly physical body. And that is what makes you different from all the other animals, is your soul. Uh, there's something different here. There is one guy created, one human being. He didn't create an entire race. He created one man. In the other creation account, God speaks. Let there be, and there was, right? He didn't say, let there be man, and there was a whole, you know, like when he says, let there be, you know, and there's a whole herd of animals or a swarm of fish or a flock of birds. He didn't say, let there be man, and there was a whole, you know, flash mob of dudes right there. No, one individual. And what that says is that God cares about each individual human being, which means God cares for you. God loves you, He loves you individually, personally. Uh, Psalm 139, 13 to 14, "'For you formed my inward parts. "'You knitted me together in my mother's womb.'" I love this language. Uh, "'I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made.'" That's the physical, but listen, he says, "'My soul knows it very well.'" My soul, not your body, your soul knows it. You know what that means? You have an awareness. You've got an intellect. You've got a reason in you. You've got emotion Eternity is within you. Uh, God breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of man. Through these little holes right here came infinity. Just an amazing thought right there. And so that is your position. And we keep going. And now I want you to see in your notes your provision. Your provision. In verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed he, he, he makes a place for him and he puts him in that place. Just like, like a baby room and putting that infant child in that crib, God puts man in a garden that he has prepared in advance for the man. And what that says is if what is true of Adam is true of you in your notes, God places you intentionally, right? Wherever you are, you are not there by random happenstance. You are there by the sovereignty of God. God is in total control. There's an intentionality to your life. And so he has created this garden. He plants this garden. For you gardeners in here, uh, you should know God was the first gardener. He planted a garden. Where did he plant it? It says eastward. Eastward in Eden. East of what? What's eastward? We we don't know. We have no no place to, to reckon where that might be. So why does he even use the term eastward? You know, I have to look at the Bible as a unified book. I look at it in its totality. Is there a central geographic locale that we concern ourselves with when we read the Scriptures? Where, Yeah, where is that action taking place? The the primary individual in all of Scripture is Jesus Christ. From whence does He come? He comes from Israel. And so I just have to conclude that eastward means east of God's land. It means east of Israel. But wherever this garden is... God puts the man there on purpose. And that's true of you and me. Wherever you are, you're by the sovereignty of God, you are there. And in verse 9, it says, Out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And so he's not just putting him in this garden and he's going to let him fend for himself. There's provision there, okay? Uh, And if that's true of Adam, it's true of you. And so in your notes, God sustains you physically, he sustains you physically, okay? Every breath that you draw, Is by the hand of God. Whatever health you have, you are granted that health by God. We are at His hand. Okay? And Adam uh, is sustained by God. He's got trees there. These trees are good for food. And we've talked about that in week one how He provided every uh, fruit bearing tree for the man. We know they're not gonna grow hungry. He meets their needs. God, every need that is met is met by God. My God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And so he meets our needs. But these trees are good for food, and, and it says that they're pleasant to the sight. And I find that fascinating because to identify these trees as pleasant to the sight means that there are other trees that are not, perhaps, as pleasant to the sight. And that means that even in creation, you could discern levels of beauty. I know that might seem a little heretical when you think about creation, how it was perfect, and God said it is very good, right? Right? But there's still some trees prettier than others. Does that seem weird to say? I don't know. I mean, are are there some animals that are prettier than others? That's true, right? Is a razorback hog better looking than a thoroughbred? I mean, maybe you think so. Maybe you're like, oh, I think they're kind of cute. Oh well, to each his own, you know. What's more majestic, a full maned lion or one of those hairless cats? You know, I mean, at the end of the day, they're both cats. But whatever. we want to skip ahead here. I want to come back to the second part of verse 9. But look at verse 10. It says, Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden. What waters this garden? This is a well-watered garden. A river waters this garden. How are rivers formed? Well, rainfall into creeks, right, and tributaries, and then a river is formed, and it flows, and it it empties eventually into a larger body of water, a lake, or an ocean, or some such. Well, this river here, it does not come about because of rainfall. There are no droplets forming this from the sky. This comes up from the earth, and there's no rain that has fallen yet, and so it comes up from below, some kind of thermal-like process, I would imagine, and it's a massive river, because it splits it says from there it parted and became four river heads it's just amazing what god has provided this place this this garden this wondrous uh, environment called eden we don't know a lot about it we do know a few things the name eden means delight delight it is beautiful it's a special place it's not happenstance God has designed it for man. He's placed man there intentionally, uh, and it's apparently large. It needs a river to water it, just like the Nile waters Egypt, just like uh, the Amazon waters parts of South America. Uh, This garden is is not like a garden in your backyard, okay? This is a massive chunk of land, and uh, daily condensation from this vapor canopy is not going to cut it. It needs its own river. And this river flows around this thing. It separates and flows around an entire land. And we see four rivers, and we're going to look at those right now. Look at verse 11. The name of the first river is Pishon. Pishon. It is the one that skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. And we're going to talk about that gold. Uh, Bdellium and the onyx stone are there, precious stones. And the name of the second river is Gihon, and it is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Hidekel, and it is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And some of you just woke up, you're like, I know that name. I know that name. And when I tell you what Hidekel translates into, you might know that one as well. So, where is this garden? Well, we don't know geographically where it is. We've already kind of established it might be east of Israel, modern day Israel. We don't know where Eden is. We could use some of these rivers as clues to kind of pinpoint its location. Uh, that first river, Pishon, uh, says it flows around the land of Havilah. We, we see those names later in Genesis, Genesis 10 and later on, but there, nothing concrete that we can derive from that. The second river, Gihon, says it flows around the land of Cush. Scholars say Cush is modern-day Ethiopia. All right? Ethiopia. Interesting. And then you've got these last two rivers, and these are the only chartable rivers in this passage. The first one is called Hiddekel. Hiddekel is the Hebrew name for the Tigris River. And if you know the fourth river, Euphrates, uh, then you probably know the Tigris because they're often mentioned together. In fact, if you are paying attention in class growing up, you heard about the Tigris and Euphrates. And what is the parcel of land in between the Tigris and the Euphrates River? What is that called? It's called the Fertile Crescent. And the nation that occupies that parcel is Iraq. Iraq, modern-day Iraq. So where are we to discern that Israel, or rather Eden, was located? Well, we don't, we don't really know. Because none of this is going to nail that down for us because all of this topography is going to change after the flood. So it doesn't really matter. So you could get hopped up on where to locate Eden. A lot of people get concerned about that. There's some modern-day Mormons who insist that Eden uh, was located in modern-day Missouri. Uh, You know, I got family in Missouri. I don't for a minute buy that it used to be Eden. Okay, uh, you know, the, the garden that whose name means delight, I don't think God is going to let, let it be a place that sounds like misery. I just don't, I don't see that, okay? But I want you to notice the wealth that is in this land. He says there's gold, there's precious stones, bedelium and onyx, okay? You've got a botanical blessing, and you've got a mineral blessing. There's, there's precious metals here. There's precious stones here. Now, what makes them precious It's their beauty. It says the land or the gold of that land was good. This is the first place in your Bible that gold is mentioned, and God says it's good. The last place gold is mentioned in your Bible is in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Where do we see gold? We see it in the eternal city, and we're walking on it. It's streets of gold, and it contributes to the beauty. Of that city. And so gold is good in the beginning, and it's good at the end when it's reclaimed its purpose. And in between, it is something that man worships and longs for. And it is his worship of it from which comes uh, 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 all kinds of evil. But God made it. There was no financial system in Adam's day. And so the value placed on this is simply its beauty, it's there to be enjoyed by man. And so what this shows us in your notes is that God blesses you aesthetically. God gave great beauty to Adam in his environment. Now, you and I don't live in Eden, but we still live in a beautiful world. I love driving around this, this town, this county, how green it is compared to where I came from. You know. And I love the beauty that God has provided in this world. I love to go to the mountains. I love to go up to Hanging Rock. I love to, you know, in California, we'd drive out to Yosemite and we'd, we'd you know, uh, just gaze up at El Capitan and Half Dome and we'd just want to sit down by the Merced River and cry. It was so pretty. And so we live in a beautiful, beautiful world. And God has blessed us and he blessed Adam. Now I want you to jump back to verse 9. And I'm going to finish that up. It says in the second part of verse 9, the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now there are trees in this garden. We've talked about them. They're They're pleasant to look at. They're good for food. But now specifically we've got the mention of two very unique trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now these trees are not probably natural trees in the same sense as the other trees in that garden. They've got fruit that they produce. It may be consumed, but these are supernatural trees. At least the tree of life is a supernatural tree, as we shall see. But let's just say that the significance of these trees is all found in the name. To partake of the tree of life would be to sustain one's life. Now, this is a literal tree. It's not a figurative, symbolic tree, as some suggest. Some say, well, I don't think that was a real tree. I think it symbolizes something else. No, it's a real tree. It's supernatural, but it's real. We're going to see it again in Revelation. It's going to appear in the holy city, in the eternal state in heaven. And uh, there, all generations of saints are are going to partake of that tree. It says there that it, it will produce 12 kinds of fruit a month. You know any trees like that? That's an amazing tree right there. And the source of this tree is that it produces eternal life. It's a source of eternal sustenance. And if this is true of Adam, it's also true of us in your notes that God nourishes you spiritually. Adam had a tree that would provide fruit that could result in eternal life. Let me ask you do you have access to eternal life? Yes. You do. And it's found in Jesus Christ. If you know him personally, your God spiritually sustains you. To know Christ is to partake of eternal life. And so you are nourished. But this other tree, this other tree, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this would expose one to that which you are never meant to know. Man was not meant to know certain things. Now it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Man knew good. Good was inherent in creation, but there was no evil to be known by man. God did not intend for that to happen. So when man would partake of this tree, which he was commanded to stay away from, we're going to read that in verse 16, he's going to rebel against that command. But when he partakes of that tree, he will now know what he was never meant to know. He will know evil. And it won't be the fruit that's going to taint him. It's going to be the act of disobedience. And after that fall, after that disobedience, God is going to say we have to remove Adam and Eve from the garden because if they stay, they're going to partake of the tree of life after having partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we don't want them to have eternal life. Why would God not want them to have eternal life after eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? We're going to get to that in a few weeks. So that's a teaser. You're not going to tell us, Pastor Scott? Nope. Got to come back. Got to come back. And so that is our provision. Now, we're going to move on from here. We're going to see our purpose. What is your purpose? Look at verse 15. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. He's he's to tend and keep the garden. God's going to give him a directive. He's going to say, I want you to do what I tell you to do. And the man is expected to be obedient. But I want you to see this is quite a life that God has planned for this man. I mean, tell me if this isn't a great lifestyle. All Adam has to do here, his major purpose is to walk with God in the cool of the day, in this beautiful, exceptional place, to be in fellowship with the Lord, to be intoxicated with the wife that God's going to give him, and he is to do what God tells him to do and have fun. And that's it. And what a work environment. If that's your job, what better environment than the Garden of Eden? Would that beat the DMV? Huh? Would that beat the sewer? Now, I know there are people that work at the DMV and in the sewer, and they like their job, and they're good at their job, and that's wonderful. But Eden? I mean, come on! Now, look, we don't live in Eden. But can we still have joy and serve the Lord wherever we are? We absolutely can, man. I don't care where you are. I've worked some, some low-life jobs in my day. But you know what? I could be content as long as I served the Lord and I knew who I was in Christ. And so can you, wherever you are, man. You work at Mickey D's, you flip burgers for Jesus. And you be joyful, amen, because he's put you there and he gives you life in your lungs. He's got a heart beating in your chest and you live for him and you can have joy. doesn't matter where you work because in your notes, your purpose is to serve and enjoy the Lord. And I know people who have all the wealth that you can imagine and they're in charge of countless people and they're miserable because they're not serving the Lord and they're not enjoying Jesus. And so that is Adam's purpose, and it is our purpose. There's nothing better than serving him. And now I want you to see your prerogatives. Your prerogatives are pictured in this text, in verse 16. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. See, there's grand permission here. Every tree. Every tree. Are there a lot of trees? Yes. Vast garden. Massive place, Eden. You can partake of every tree. But what does he say? He says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You see, one measly command. This is God's way. Vast, magnanimous, benevolent permission. Man, all you see is yours. You have full access to anything uh, that you gaze upon. And not only do you have access to it, you are in charge of it. You have dominion over it. It is under your command. Go forth and enjoy. But there's this one tree. Man, don't go near that tree. I'm telling you, you eat of that tree, you're a dead man. You are a dead man. Be forewarned. And folks... If you are the descendant of Adam, and we all are, we have the same arrangement. Because in your notes, our choice is God, who is life, or sin, and that's death. Adam's got everything, man. It's all at his uh, disposal. But I want you to see, even though he's got everything he could ever want, what is the first temptation that that man is posed with by the devil? He says, (laughs) God knows that if you eat of this, you'll be like him. You see, God knows there's more. Oh, there's so much more. God doesn't have your best interest at heart. If you obey God, you're going to miss out. <laughs> you're going to miss it. God's not totally honest with you. He's not totally sufficient. What he's given you is not enough. You're going to have to go off on your own to find fulfillment. Is that playbook still working today? Satan's still doing that today? Telling those lies today? Absolutely. See, God made that command because God knew what the ramifications of disobedience would be. He knew what awaited man on the other side of that disobedience. And he also knew that when tempted, man would cave because man wanted to know what he didn't know. I've got a couple of dogs. One of them is still kind of a puppy. He's like eight months old. His name is Lucky. He's a golden doodle. And Lucky will live up to his name if he makes his first birthday. (laughs) Okay, now he's honoring. He's a bit of a rascal. Now, he's got everything he could ever want. I mean, we provide everything for him. He's got food. He's got water. He's got treats. He's got uh, toys. He's got shelter. He's got people to clean up his puddles that he leaves around the house from time to time. He's got one mandate. Lucky, you stay inside this gate. You stay right in here. Do not go out that gate. So he knows what he's supposed to do. And yet, if that gate is ever ajar, and he is close, he bolts out that gate, and he will run all over creation. Why does he want to go out there? Because freedom! (laughs) That's why. He wants to know what's out there. He's insanely curious. Now, why don't I want him to have freedom? Am I just trying to harsh his buzz? I mean, what's going on? Am I just some kind of a killjoy in the life of Lucky? I mean, does Scott want to hold him back from all that he's meant to be? That's what he thinks. He thinks, you know, Scott wants to hold me back. I'm meant for more. There's got to be more out there. No, no, no. I know what's out there. There are cars out there, right? When he was a little pup, there are hawks in our neighborhood. They'd swoop right down and grab him. He looks like a squirrel. And when he was little, you know, I know there's a pond in our backyard. He'll fall right in it, sink to the bottom. He already did that one time. We had to fish him out, dry him off. Okay? I know he's going to get muddy, and he's going to bring mud in the house. I know what's in his best interest. But he's just looking for freedom, right? Now, he's got the prerogative to obey or disobey, and so do you. God knows the ramifications. And though Lucky may want to uh, buck the provision and wisdom of Scott. There will be a payday for that if he indulges in total freedom. Next time you see a dead dog on the side of the road, you just make a mental note. That's what total freedom looks like. Right? And God knew what awaited man, but man wanted what he didn't know. And you've got the freedom to choose that. You can choose to obey or disobey, but if you disobey, there are consequences, and you have to live with or die with those consequences. And Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. That's pretty severe consequences. You ever heard people say this? If God exists, why is there fill in the blank? Why is there death? Why is there rape, murder, injustice, starvation, suffering, disease, yada, yada, yada? Right? You ever heard that? And what's the answer, of course? Well, the answer is it's a fallen world. Those things exist because the world is imperfect. It was not created that way. The world as it is is not as it was. It came pristine from his hand. It is not now. Why not? Because of sin in the garden. Romans 5:12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see? And so that's the answer. But if you, if you share that with someone, they're A, either not going to understand what you're talking about or they're going to get the concept and they're going to come up with another logical question, which is basically, well... If God exists and he knows everything, which I assume he does, then he knew that death would be the result of sin. if he knows that, why did he allow Adam to sin? What's the answer to that? Well, God created man in his image. Why did he do that? Because he loved man. And so out of love, he creates man in his image, which means man has a will. And man cannot be in God's image and be without choice. That's what sets us apart from the rest of creation. To create man as a robot would not be an act of love. If God had created a world where sin was not possible, that would be a non-moral world. And a non-moral world is not a good world. It's not the same thing. To have morality, you must have the ability to choose right or wrong. That's what makes you a moral being. A non-moral being is not by default a good being. You are simply without morality. And so the greatest purpose of man, as we've discussed before, is what? It's the glory of God. His greatest purpose for you and I is that we worship him. Let me ask you a question. Can you worship without a will? You say, well, creation gives glory to God. It's not the same. The way that you worship is not the same way that inanimate creation worships. You worship directly. You worship actively. And you have the ability to worship him with your actions or Dishonor him with your disobedience. And so when he created man, he created us in his image sovereignly. And when you choose disobedience, you will live or die with the consequences. Because uh, uh, a necessary potentiality of the will that God has given you, that is required to worship him in spirit and in truth, uh, a necessary potentiality of that is that you may choose sin. And when you do, the the results can be disastrous. See, your will is a a wonderful and terrible privilege. It's a moral grenade, you understand? Why doesn't God just get rid of sin? Why does he just get rid of it? Well, if he if he will, he will. But he doesn't now. If If he got rid of sin now, he'd have to get rid of you. He'd have to get rid of me. So our God is not currently in the business of getting rid of sin. He's in the business of saving sinners. That's what our God does. But here's what I want you to see. Despite man's sin, in your notes, man's bad choices facilitate a greater glory through the cross. See, the plan that God's going to put in place will will bring him more glory than the presumed obedience of Adam because it's going to come from the God-man who would obey perfectly. He would do what Adam failed to do in the very beginning. Romans 5, 21 says, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this is the sub-point of the Bible. When you look at the Bible and you look at the beginning and you look at the end, you look at Genesis and you look at Revelation, the theme here is the establishment of God's kingdom, the loss of of God's kingdom and the eventual reestablishment of God's kingdom, which will last forever. In Genesis, you got the first kingdom. God makes a, a creation, He makes a world, a universe. It is perfect. That is His kingdom, Eden. What do you have to have to have a kingdom? You have to have willing subjects. Do they have subjects in that kingdom? They do. They got a man, they got a woman. And they are subjects of a king, but they disobey that king. They rebel against that king. Now that kingdom has been relinquished. It's been given over. Dominion has been lost. To who? To the deceiver. You see, remember when Satan took Jesus? He's tempting him. He takes him to the highest mountain. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world. He says, if you'll just bow down and worship me, I'm going to give you all these kingdoms. And we read that and we go, you think you own all those kingdoms? Why did he say that? Because he he does have dominion over those kingdoms. That's why he's called the prince of this world. You see, through sin, dominion of this world was relinquished to Satan. And so after the fall of that kingdom, it is under his control. And it gets so bad that God just, by chapter 6, as we'll see, destroys the earth by flood. And he starts all over with eight people. Noah and his family. He says, all right, let's see if you can represent my kingdom now. We'll try this again. You're going to be my people, and you're going to govern one another, and we're going to set up some principles. Well, that doesn't work because people are people, and they're sinful because they descend from Adam, and so they just want to glorify self, and they build a tower that goes up presumably to the heavens, and they say, we will be like the Most High, which is exactly what Satan said. And God says, no, you won't. And he disperses them, and he creates different peoples with different uh, cultures and different languages, and he takes one of those peoples in the form of one man, and he says, Abram, I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to make you my people, and your people are going to represent my kingdom to the rest of the world. You obey me, and I will be your king. How'd that work out? It didn't. They disobeyed him, and they went off after idols, and they worshiped false gods, and they became pagan, God said, okay, fine, I'm gonna let you be uh, taken off into slavery. Half of you will go into Assyria, the other half will go into Babylon, and they're gonna get conquered over and over and over by, by, uh, by the Persians, by the Greeks, by the Romans, until finally God says, I'm gonna send my son in the flesh. Here he is. Jesus is on the earth. This is your king. This is your Messiah. He's here. And all you Israelites, you can come under the authority of the true king. But they just crucified him. And he said, you reject my son. Okay, well, I'm just going to open the kingdom up. I'm going to blind you to my kingdom temporarily. And I'm going to open this kingdom up to some other people, some non-Jews. I'm going to give the kingdom access to some, some Greeks and some Germans and some Russians, and some Chinese, and some Japanese, and some Africans, and some Carolinians, all right? Some Gentiles, and they will be my church, and they will be a glimpse of the coming kingdom. But it's going to be a glimpse. It's just going to be a glimpse. And one day, my son's going to come back and he's going to establish his kingdom for real on the earth. And all that church, those Gentiles are going, and any Israelites that are on the earth at that time, by faith, they can go in if they will submit to the king. And that is the totality of your Bible, that it's bookended by kingdoms. Creation in its perfection, which will fall and be surrendered. And the reestablishment of a kingdom Because of Jesus Christ. But I want you to understand something. That final kingdom will never fall. That final kingdom will be a perfect, everlasting kingdom. And let me tell you what. It will be even greater than the first kingdom. As marvelous as it was back in Genesis. Let me show you the comparison. In Genesis, what do you have? You've got light that uh, illuminates the earth. The sun, the moon. In Revelation, there's no need of a sun or a moon. Christ is the light. In Genesis, you've got man living in a prepared garden. Well, in Revelation, man is living in a prepared city, brilliant and scintillating, glorious. In Genesis, the river flows out of Eden. In Revelation, the river flows from the throne of God. In Genesis, you've got gold in the land. Well, in the eternal city, we walk on gold. That's what that city is made of. In Genesis, you've got a tree of life in the middle of the garden. Well, in the eternal city in Revelation, it's in the midst of the city. In Genesis, you have a number of precious stones in the land. Well, in Revelation, the foundations of the city's walls are adorned with every kind of precious stone. In Genesis, God walks in the garden. Well, in Revelation, God is in the midst of his people. In Genesis, the ground will become cursed. In Revelation, there is no more curse. In Genesis, there will come to be daily sorrow because of sin. Well, in Revelation, he will wipe every tear from our eyes. In Genesis, there will be thorns and thistles that will arise because of sin. In Revelation, there will be no more pain. Everything will be good. In Genesis, man's given every herb, every green tree, every green plant for food. In Revelation, we will eat every kind of fruit from the tree of life for eternity. In Genesis, man will eventually return to the dust from whence he came. But in Revelation, he will be re- raised incorruptible never to perish again. In Genesis, man's thoughts become only evil all the time. Well, in Revelation, we are uh, purified. Nothing will defile us. In Genesis, after the fall, God will cover our shame with animal skins. But in Revelation, we return in fine linen, white and clean and pure. In Genesis, Satan is the tempter that causes man to fall. In Revelation, that tempter is thrown into the lake of fire. In Genesis, man is kept from the tree of life after the fall. In Revelation, we have access forever to that tree. In Genesis, man is banished from the garden. In Revelation, we have unfettered access to the Father of lights. And in Genesis, the the Redeemer is promised after the fall, but in Revelation, the angel says, the kingdom of this world will be the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and and ever and ever and ever. ever amen and in that day redemption will be fully and finally accomplished our God will reclaim his bride our God would reclaim his creation our God would redeem those slaves and we will be free forever and you know what won't be in that holy city there may be a tree of life But there will be no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There will be no tempter. And although what is true of Adam may be true of us, in that day, in that final kingdom, we will not make the same mistake that Adam made. No way. But until that day, we live in this world, under God, but we live as subjects of the next world. Amen? Good to know? So let's do that. Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon this group. May they just walk in glory and the knowledge of who you are, of who we are in you, and of what we will be. It's a glorious future. As glorious as your creation was, the best is yet to come. And I pray that we will live that out every single day. The citizens in this fallen place. And we ask this in Jesus' name, that you be glorified. Amen. Amen. Amen.